Welcome to The Readout, a new conversation series with State Department spokesperson Heather Nauert. This discussion is with the acting director of the U.S. Diplomacy Center, Olive Sampson, and its public historian, Allison Mann. Today we're joined by Olive Sampson. She's with the Diplomacy Center. Olive is here to talk with us a little bit about African American History Month and also more about the Diplomacy Center and learning about that. Olive, great to see you again. Thank you. Uh, The Diplomacy Center is such a beautiful building here on the 21st Street side of the State Department. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what its main objective is. The Diplomacy Center is a museum and education center. What is wonderful about it is that it's the first of its kind in the United States to tell the story about American diplomacy. It'll be open to the public, like any other of the Smithsonian museums, because we really want this to be a center where the American public has the opportunity to learn how diplomacy affects their lives every day. As I said before, there is nothing else like it, and we have found that educators and students are already interested in what we have to offer. So I want to hear about the types of things there. You walk through it, it's beautiful. You see some of the artifacts. What are some of the more notable ones? The oldest artifact is 1778, our first treaty of of trade with, uh, with France in 1778. And so what we have, though, is uh, the first printing by John Dunlop. It's the oldest um, printed version of that treaty that exists. And what are some of the newer things there? One of the things that we have, we find that sports enthusiasts love, is the fact that we have a baseball that was thrown out at a game, the first game between the Cuban national team and the U.S. team. Hmm. That is is of interest to sports because people don't connect diplomacy and sports. And in so many ways, there are connections between everything that we do and and diplomacy. I I think a lot of people are interested in the types of gifts uh, that our Secretary of State or other Secretaries of State might have received along the way of their travels. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in hearing the types of things that that our Secretaries get and and where they go after they receive them. Gifts to Secretaries of State really symbolize what is important about the culture of that country, what it is that a national leader wants to share with the Secretary of State of the United States. Where do those typically go once a secretary receives such a gift? This, those go, the Office of Protocol here, the department keeps that collection for the Secretary of State. At the end of his or her term here, each secretary has the opportunity to purchase pieces that they wish or donate them, to, or leave them donated to the government, or mm-hmm. they are the property of the government, leave them to the government. Some of them come to us at the Diplomacy Center. We select those that we find useful to our collection, and others go back, go to the, to the federal government to be stored here in the department, or um, they're turned over to the General Services Administration. So is there a big room that you can walk through and say, I would love this for the diplomacy? Center. I would love to put that on display. At the end of the secretary's term, they lay them all out, mm-hmm. and the secretary has the first dibs, of course, <laughs> <laughs> and then we follow and are able to select those artifacts where we feel there is a need in our collection, where something will help to answer or tell a story that supports some aspect of an exhibit or a potential public program. How many of those uh, artifacts do we have on display at the Diplomacy Center? We ha- in our collection, we have 7,500 artifacts. Mm-hmm. When the museum opens in 2020, 
we anticipate that each of our exhibits will be supported very selectively. We won't always have 7,500 artifacts on display, mm -hmm. but we will have artifacts that support the various stories that are told. I so see. That someone so there would looks be a at, theme, There would be example. a theme, for example. Jazz diplomacy Jazz right now. diplomacy mm -hmm. is, in, is in the center right now, mm -hmm. um, and it tells the story of public diplomacy. How do you engage foreign audiences? at the cultural level to tell them who are Americans here, introducing them to American music. Jazz is distinctively American. It, it's more, it, there's the music that's very engaging, but it tells a story as well about the creativity of our artists, about how widespread that is across our country. And the freedom that, that jazz tells, jazz is a, is a music of freedom. And so there's, there's the possibility to tell the story of our love of freedom through, through the music of mm, jazz. That's fascinating. You must love what you do. I absolutely do. I think I'm really fortunate to <laughs> yeah. be working in this position. So it, it isn't formally open yet, but part of your job is to determine what objects you want there and then help getting the center ready for its formal opening. So my job at this time, the job of mine and the, and the great staff of the U.S. Diplomacy Center is to help define the content. American diplomacy spans from the time of even prior to our independence, but let's say from our independence until today, what are the stories, what are the themes that we will draw out that are really powerful messages to the American public? Because the goal is that American citizens come and learn exactly how it is that American diplomacy affects them every single day. They understand the role of the military, but what is the role of diplomacy? And so the center has to tell a range of stories because for each story that is told, there's someone out there. There's someone out there for whom this is going to be a powerful message. Mm -hmm. And so our, our work right now is to help to develop the exhibits, to take the content and create those exhibits work with exhibit designers, and then as we develop content, identify what are the artifacts that will support that. Also, right now, even though the museum is not officially open, we already have started our education programs. Mm. Last year, we reached over 7,000 students across the United States, along with their educators, in person through our education programs. And what kinds of things are you talking about? The, one of the, I think our flagship education program is our diplomatic simulation. The diplomacy simulation brings students together, normally a group of about 30 high school or college students, to try to resolve an issue, much as if they were in an, in an international negotiation. Oh. And they can be very simple, where they're just, this is a bilateral negotiation, or it could entail multilateral agencies and um, neighboring countries, third parties, et cetera. So they the actually model this, kind of like a model UN like a model or UN. like a debate club or something. And you know, it's very revealing for them. They come, they sit at the table and try to, to for example, deal with a migration issue. Mm -hmm. And as they work through it, they realize, wait, this is a lot more complex than I thought. You know, <laughs> and it takes a lot longer, right? It takes a lot longer. <laughs> and they establish their negotiating positions and then they have to go back and say, no, this is not gonna work. How can we resolve it? And at the end of it, students always talk about how much they have learned, how much regard they now have for the work that diplomats do mm -hmm. for the process of negotiating and for themselves that they can take this back, a skill that they can use even in their lives now. It also inspires them to public service, ways in which they can help 
to the, how can we be a strong, how can I be a stronger American citizen? And, what and, is it that I can And maybe can our do? next uh, generation of diplomats as well. Our next generation of diplomats. Somewhere in there is one of, is a future Secretary of State. <laughs> that would be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. And it just might be. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about how the program is, is actually financed. Does this mm -hmm. come through taxpayer dollars? Are you raising money privately for it? The Diplomacy Center is a public-private partnership. The public aspect of it is the small staff, the, the security and the space that our office occupies. The space of the museum itself is, the construction of that was from private dollars raised from corporations, individuals, foundations, all of whom support this idea of a center that focuses on American diplomacy. As we go forward, when the center is open, we, we plan to be self-sustaining, raising funds for education programs through grants, revenue for our operating expenses through being able to rent our space, through conferences where we charge fees, through various revenue streams. So this project is a public-private partnership that relies as little as possible on appropriated money. All right, uh, Olive Sampson, thank you so much. I'm going to talk with one of your colleagues in just a second, uh, Dr. Allison Mann, a little bit about uh, some of the other uh, programs that you have right now. So looking forward to that and highlighting also African American History Month. So learning about some of our first African American diplomats. So thanks for the overview of how things are going at the Diplomacy Center. And thank you. Dr. Allison Mann is the historian at the Diplomacy Center here at the State Department in Washington, D.C. Uh, recently, we were just talking with your colleague, yes. Olive Sampson, about the Diplomacy Center, but we actually have a historian. Your job is to come up with all the history and document a lot of the artifacts. Yes. Uh, I'd love to hear about this incredible exhibit that you have right now about uh, jazz diplomacy. You spoke to our press corps uh, just not long ago, mm -hmm. and they were fascinated by the idea of jazz diplomacy. Uh, tell us what this means and where it's been used. Yeah, they were really excited about it, Heather. Um, so jazz diplomacy is uh, sending out cultural ambassadors. And so the idea was conceived uh, by the Department of State. And it was really primarily to combat this communist propaganda that is infusing the airwaves and, uh, you know, all over the world. And so the State Department came up with this idea to send out these uh, jazz musicians, Americans, like Duke Ellington. Mm -hmm. And they sent them um, mostly into these Eastern Bloc countries, the Middle East, um, where you know you had a lot of uprisings in the 1950s, where the communists were stepping in and trying to fill that sort of political vacuum. So this was a way for the United States to introduce into these areas of the world the wonderful music of jazz, but also to to combat the very negative um, Soviet propaganda that was being put out. And so jazz diplomacy continued throughout the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm and 70s, and they were cultural ambassadors for the United States. That's incredible. So I wonder what the environment was like when Dizzy Gillespie would go to, I don't know if you know any of his trip itineraries, but when he would go to Eastern European countries, would he do interviews with people? Would he just play in public? What can you tell us he about those trips? He would perform, because remember, so they're Eastern Bloc countries, so it's tightly controlled. Mm -hmm. But the, the audiences loved it. I mean, it was something so new. But remember, they had been, that Iron Curtain, you know, mm -hmm. had descended uh, down. And so for the audiences who were living in the Eastern Bloc countries, this was something so amazing for them. And just to have an American musician there was so important and exciting for them. So it's a means of soft diplomacy, really, mm -hmm. and it's a way for... Um, 
to them to really sort of think about in their own minds, what I'm hearing that propaganda, is that really true? Is what they say about Americans really true? Well, maybe it really isn't. And, and I'm, I'm so surprised to hear that the countries allowed this to happen, allowed our representatives, if you will, to come on over. Yes. Well, we did have diplomatic relations with some countries. We still had embassies there, and we still provided those services. So it was a way for Americans to get their message through to these countries without being heavy-handed about it. Yeah. T uh, tell us about some of the pictures that are on display in the Diplomacy Center. I seem to recall Dizzy Gillespie playing in Cuba. Was that right? Um, no, actually, uh, he's not in Cuba. They went to the Middle East, they went to Northern Africa, and they went to the Eastern Bloc countries like Poland. So those photographs you'll see are from those countries. Okay. Yes. And uh, and what else? What other uh, musicians? You mentioned Duke Ellington. Mm -hmm. Duke Ellington was featured. Um, it's really kind of a long list. We have a great variety of musicians. And so anyone who wants to see the exhibit can contact us and we can set up a tour. Mm -hmm. And folks can learn more about this amazing initiative. That is fascinating. Yes. I love that idea. Who came up with that idea? Um, actually, one of our uh, one of our junior staff who just graduated with her MA, so she was kind of raring to go. She did an internship with Meridian International, and so she was really thinking about what can we put up in this beautiful space. And she made those contacts through Meridian, and they had this exhibit, so they gave it to us on loan, oh. and we were able to put it up in our space. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah. And wonderful that an intern contributed to that idea. She has great contacts. What can I well, say? Uh, yes. Okay, and so we're talking right now, and it's African American History Month, and you have an exhibit that is also going and some programs mm -hmm. that talk about our, our first African-American ambassadors. Uh, one, a very familiar name to every student of American history. Uh, tell us a little bit about who they were. Well, our first African-American diplomat was Ebenezer Bassett. And uh, he was appointed by President Grant after the Civil War. And a piece of this puzzle, too, that I'd like audiences to know is that the United States did not have diplomatic relations with Haiti until 1862. Mm -hmm. So think about how unusual that was during the midst of the Civil War to think, oh, we have to establish relations with this country. Um, Haiti is a very important spot in the Caribbean, and we just didn't have a diplomatic presence there. And after the war was over, you start to see um, black intellectuals being elected as senators, elected as congressmen and so it was very natural that the grant administration would think that we have to appoint an african-american mm -hmm. to this very important um, mission to haiti mm -hmm. because haiti was seen as a great trading partner it had great exports in coffee and sugar and so it was very important to have a diplomatic presence there and bassett was very well educated uh, he attended the Connecticut Normal School that he graduated from, and he attended classes at Yale, and he became fluent in French. Mm. So it made him a really good fit to go down to Haiti. And when he went down there, though, he realized that his French maybe wasn't as good as he thought because it was French Creole. Mm. So he had to kind of learn on the spot, you know, to communicate. Oh, I'm, I'm just trying to imagine how difficult that must have been for him. Oh, my as gosh. As an African-American yes, man, even having so. to travel into the United States, let alone getting to Haiti uh, during that time period. Do we, do we know anything? about his travels and some of his work? We do, we know a lot. Um, at a program that we did on the bicentennial of Frederick Douglass's birthday on the 14th of February, we had an expert on Ebenezer Bassett with us. Uh, he's a foreign service officer. Mm. And he was stationed um, in uh, the Dominican Republic and he saw a photograph of Ebenezer Bassett on the wall and he thought, who, who is this? So who is this man? And then the more he learned about them, the more he became determined to tell his story. So he did a lot of research. He published a biography of Ebenezer Bassett and we were so happy to have him join us because
because he's working on a documentary as well. And so when he spoke, he was able to relate how Bassett, he took his wife with him. You know, this is a very tenacious woman. Bassett she did. Said, oh yeah, she said, I'm, I'm going with you. The, wow. we're, we're going together. And then they traveled by ship and he also told us how they both got very seasick and it was rather unpleasant. Um, because to be uh, a minister to these areas, it was dangerous. Yeah. You had um, diplomats dying of malaria. Mm -hmm. If you visit the wall downstairs mm -hmm. in the State Department, mm -hmm. you can see volcano eruption, mm -hmm. fell overboard. You know, it was very hazardous to be a diplomat during this yeah. time period. So it was difficult for them to get down there, but they were very well received by the Haitians. Yeah, and, and just for uh, awareness of people who have not seen this at the State Department, mm -hmm. uh, we're in the uh, the foyer of the, of the State Department here, our main building, Harry S. Truman Building, but on either side of the foyer, there are memorial walls mm -hmm. uh, dedicated to yes. honor the memory of our officers, yes. our diplomats who have died in the service in of the our line country. Of duty, exactly. and, and just to, as you point out, you'll see the names, the dates, or rather the year in which somebody died, where they died, and sometimes it will say how they how they passed away, as you point out, malaria. Right. Or I've noticed this one a lot, drowned saving a life. I know, isn't that um, interesting? Incredible to see incredible. the lives. Yeah. Right. So you can see these early diplomats are really duty bound. Mm -hmm. And they are still today, of, 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 of course. course. Um, and then we have um, another very famous yes. diplomat. I was talking with my colleague in my office, Foreign Service Officer, who said, I had no idea that the Please. Frederick Douglass, yes. the famous and well-known abolitionist, had been an ambassador too. Yes, he was also an ambassador to Haiti. Um, he came after Bassett. So Bassett was the first African-American diplomat. And uh, Douglas received his appointment also under Republican administration in uh, 1889 under uh, President Harrison. So Douglas had been doing a lot of canvassing for the Republican Party. The Republicans lost the election of 1884. And one of the reasons why they lost it was because they lost the state of New York. Frederick Douglass had a very strong influence in the state of New York, and he really went around uh, drumming up the black vote there and so the Republicans were able to come back into uh, the White House in 1888 and Douglas really wanted to he felt duty-bound and so Harrison thought Haiti we want you to represent the United States in Haiti and Douglas agreed to do so and by this time he was already Heather very advanced in age so we talked about Bassett and going and being seasick and Douglas at this time was in his early 70s really he was yes I mean the life expectancy back then must have been uh, it, Early 60s or so? Well, it depended. If you made it through infancy, you stood a good chance. <laughs> you stood a good chance of living into into oh, uh, into old age. Wow. But um, this is a difficult journey for him. But um, the original letter of him accepting is in the National Archives. People can see it online. And he says, I feel it is my duty to accept this. And his wife went with him as well. To accept the nomination from the president um, to become ambassador? To, well, she also went with him to Haiti. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. again, once again, you see these wives of these early diplomats um, accompanying them, even though they knew it was very dangerous mm -hmm. to do so. What was he well known for in terms of his work as a diplomat? Frederick Douglass? Mm. Well, it was the primary mission of the United States to establish a trading port. And so Douglass's only prime mission there was to get a lease of a port. Um, so that way commercial interests could go in and out of that port very easily, and that was the sole objective. But unfortunately, Douglas on the ground had a great relationship with the government. And he was working on this issue. But you had a lot of American businessmen who were getting antsy. They were saying, when can we do this? When can we go down there? So the administration decided to send a warship down, and that was a really bad idea. 
Um, the warship arrived and there was an admiral on board who said, I'm going to take over the negotiations. And so the president saw that as, oh, well, wait a minute. Are we having a peaceful negotiation? You have this warship here. What, what's going on? And it really fell apart. And so Douglas was there for about a year and a half. And very quickly after this fell apart, he resigned his position. And he returned back to Washington, D.C., where he continued his civil rights activism. He was very much a proponent of women's suffrage. Mm. And here we are today, right? And here we are today. Incredible. What incredible stories that you have to tell. Uh, what do you have coming up next in terms of some of the uh, people you'll be highlighting or some of the exhibits? Uh, well, we are working on a program for Women's History Month that we're putting together. Um, this is also the 50th anniversary of the Tet Offensive. Mm. And I don't know if you know this, Heather, but um, during the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, um, they actually exploded a bomb outside the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. There was a hole blown. And so the Viet Cong was able to enter into the embassy, you had diplomats who were there, and so they were telegraphing back to Washington, and they held the line, they held them in the compound. A foreign service officer who had served in Vietnam was later, uh, he was there in the 1980s, and he noticed they were ripping up the sidewalk mm -hmm. outside this, this hole, where that hole had been. Mm -hmm. And so he said, I'm going to get myself a piece of that sidewalk. Mm -hmm. And it's now in the diplomacy center. Okay. So when we talk about the stories of diplomacy, it's a way for us to connect a moment in time back to a person and to something significant that happened. And so we will feature the gentleman who donated the object, who had been a Foreign Service officer. He can tell his personal story, and then the public can see the item. I love that. Wow, what, what a reservoir of information you are. I guess that's why you're the historian for the Diplomacy Center. Yeah, it's a, it's a <laughs> lot of stories to tell, but I love it. It's oh, great. It's great. Well, Dr. Allison, ma'am, thank you so much. Thank you I, so much And I want to talk to you me. again when we have some new exhibits, too, great. so that you can tell us these incredible love stories. It. Thanks loved, for the opportunity. Loved hearing about you are listening to The Readout, a new conversation series with State Department spokesperson Heather Nauert. That was a discussion with the acting director of the U.S. Diplomacy Center, Olive Sampson, and the Center's public historian, Allison Mann. Join us next time.